A young boy wanders off into the woods at school recess and is never seen again, although a man is arrested and eventually convicted of the crime in the early 1900s. Another boy disappears during a camping trip with his family in Louisiana, but turns up later with a man from North Carolina. Or does he? And a missing persons case in Myrtle Beach comes to a devastating conclusion for the 25-year-old young man's family in recent years. There are a number of missing persons cases right here in the Carolinas, and some have received more media attention than others. These are the stories that tug at our heartstrings, make us pray it never happens to anyone in our families, and wonder if there is still any way to find closure for these missing persons and their loved ones. I'm Renee Robertson. Please join me for Missing in the Carolinas. Episode 42, Missing, Murdered, and Mistaken Identity in the Carolinas. I want to start out today's episode with two very old cases that occurred in the early 1900s. The first is that of eight-year-old Kenneth Beasley. On February 13, 1905, eight-year-old Kenneth Beasley left his home in rural Currituck County, which was about 50 miles from Norfolk, Virginia, and 30 miles from Elizabeth City, to walk to school. His school was about a half mile from his home. It was located in Odd Fellows Hall, which has since been turned into a private residence, just one block away from the Poplar Branch Post Office. Kenneth was a middle child who had a 17-year-old brother and a four-year-old sister, so they weren't on the walk with him that morning. Kenneth's father was Samuel Beasley, a farmer who had opened up the Poplar Branch boat landing for commercial fishing and transport a few years earlier. Samuel was also the state senator for Currituck County at the time, and was away in the state capital of Raleigh on business. It was cold and snowy on that morning, but by recess, the students were able to get outside for some fresh air. Kenneth's two teachers were Nina Harrison, who taught the four lower grades, and Professor M.P. Jennings, who taught the older students and served as the head of the school. Kenneth played with his friends during recess, but when the bell rang to go back into school around 1 p.m., Kenneth told his cousin Benny Walker, I'm going farther back. He then disappeared into the dense woods behind the school. Later, Kenneth's classmates said they didn't know why he wanted to go into the woods. He must not have planned to be gone long because he left his coat and gloves hanging inside the school building. When his teacher discovered he hadn't returned from recess, she alerted the headmaster and they sent a few students out to search for the boy. Once the townspeople caught wind of what was going on, a more extensive search was organized. Even with 300 men searching the woods and wetlands in Currituck County, no sign of Kenneth turned up. They checked a cabin in the woods where a man described as a Yankee was known to live to see if he'd seen or heard anything, but the man had abandoned the cabin long before Kenneth's disappearance. Senator Beasley arranged to take the train back home as soon as he received a telegram with the news. Rumors began to circulate, and keep in mind that this was during the era where yellow journalism frequented the newspapers. Editors were known to print rumors and opinions as quickly as they would confirmed facts. In her book, True Crime Stories of Eastern North Carolina, author Kathy Pickens pointed out this account that the Raleigh News and Observer printed. 
There was a strange man up about Barco Post Office and two more places by three different men. He was in a buggy drawn by a black male and had the boy down between his knees, but the people saw him before they heard the boy was missing. These men that saw him say that the boy was crying and seemed dissatisfied, but the man was talking to him rough. Almost from the beginning, the residents of Poplar Branch had one main suspect in mind as they considered whether or not Kenneth Beasley had been kidnapped. Joshua Harrison was a farmer who had married into an influential family. His father-in-law was a Methodist minister. His brother-in-law was a U.S. congressman who had helped create what is now East Carolina University. Joshua Harrison, who was also the father of Kenneth's teacher Nina Harrison, had a reputation for being a bully in the community, as well as a bootlegger. In the past, he had been charged with shooting someone named Caleb Owens in the forehead, killing him instantly. He claimed the gun had gone off accidentally and wasn't charged for the crime. Kathy Pickens found in her research that Caleb Owens appeared to be a young boy around the age of eight. Joshua Harrison was also charged with killing an elderly man in another case, but again was found not guilty. It's unclear why he evaded prosecution in these crimes. Was it his wealthy family's influence? His reputation as a violent man who made his own wine? No one really knows. But in the early 1900s, Samuel Beasley was creating legislation that would prohibit the sale of liquor. Joshua Harrison took this personally, as his business was affected. The friction between the two men led residents to suspect Joshua Harrison had kidnapped young Kenneth Beasley in retaliation. An April 5, 1905 article that ran in the Charlotte Daily Observer printed an inflammatory article that only further convinced the public of Joshua Harrison's involvement. It read, The peculiar and baffling mystery connected with the disappearance of Kenneth Beasley, the eight-year-old son of State Senator S.M. Beasley of Poplar Branch, Currituck County, has been cleared up by finding of the boy in Norfolk, where he was carried by those who kidnapped him during the recess of the Poplar Branch High School on Monday, February 13th. It is reported that one of the kidnappers has been arrested and fear is entertained for his safety. Senator Beasley and Detective Hurricane Branch have gone to Norfolk to bring the missing boy back home. It is alleged that the boy was spirited away from the school in a vehicle and that one of the kidnappers is the son of a prominent preacher. Mr. Beasley, shortly after his son's disappearance, offered a $500 reward for his recovery. Just a day later, the newspaper had to retract the article as the Norfolk police in Virginia had no information regarding the location of Kenneth Beasley or any kidnappers. Yellow journalism had struck once again. Eighteen months after Kenneth Beasley's disappearance, Joshua Harrison was indicted for the crime. While the case was tried in Elizabeth City, many Currituck County residents made the trip to the courthouse for the trial. Joshua Harrison was found guilty although I have to wonder what the evidence against him was. As he was led from the courtroom, he swore his innocence and said he had no idea what had happened to Kenneth Beasley. 
Joshua Harrison was released from jail on appeal, but to no avail. He was ordered to prison, but shot himself in his hotel room in the Norfolk Hotel before he could be transported. He left behind a written statement, once again emphasizing his innocence. In 2018, a North Carolina attorney named Charles Oldham researched the case extensively and published a book titled The Senator's Son, The Shocking Disappearance, The Celebrated Trial, and The Mystery That Remains a Century Later. In it, he explores the rumors about the case, as well as the reporting and political climate of the time. He also says he has a theory about what really happened to Kenneth Beasley. I haven't read the book, but plan to add it to my reading list and will link it in the show notes for anyone else who is interested in this case. Here's the synopsis of the book. On Monday, February 13, 1905, eight-year-old Kenneth Beasley walked to the back of his school's playground and into the melting snow of the woods beyond. He never returned. A massive search was undertaken for the North Carolina State Senator's son, and a reward was offered. Despite clues, rumors, and even a ransom note, he was never found. A year and a half later, a political rival hurriedly was charged. Accused of the most bizarre and twisted of plots, he faced a courtroom overflowing with jurors, star lawyers, spectators, and newspaper reporters. The eventual verdict and stunning aftermath would rip apart two families and shock a state, yet leave a mystery unsolved. Now Charles Oldham, attorney by trade, has reopened the case, using modern research methods and his own legal training, while also investigating the state's political, racial, lynching, and liquor cultures, Oldham has come as close as anyone can to the truth. Before we continue, let's take a quick break to talk about our sponsor. I've always enjoyed writing fiction, but I didn't really get serious about it until I was in my 30s. After submitting to the WOW Flash Fiction Contest a few times, I was thrilled when I placed as a runner-up with my piece titled In the Depths. WOW still hosts a quarterly writing contest every three months, and I highly recommend entering it. The entry fees are minimal, and you can also purchase a critique to get feedback on your story once the contest concludes. The mission of this contest is to inspire creativity, great writing, and provide well-rewarded recognition to contestants. The contest is open globally, age is of no matter, and entries must be in English. And the best part is that the contest is open to all genres, from romance to science fiction to thriller suspense to literary fiction. The Spring 2022 Flash Fiction Contest with literary agent Shellen Pelletier with DG&B Literary Agency closes on May 31st. You can visit wow-womenonwriting.com and click on the contest tab for more information. I also wanted to make a quick mention of Stitch Fix, the online personal styling service. I first tried Stitch Fix out a few years ago when they were only sending the fixes that contained four or five clothing items and accessories. The business model appealed to me because I don't have a lot of time to shop for clothing and have trouble staying on top of the trends. Because I work from home, I stopped getting the fixes after a few months because I didn't feel like I needed that many items. When I found out they were offering a freestyle program, I went online to check it out. 
Stitch Fix still had my profile featuring likes and dislikes and past purchases on file, so I was easily able to shop their new arrivals section and bought two tops that I liked and that also fit my budget. I appreciated how seamless the process was. If you'd like to check them out, I'll share a referral link in the show notes. You can earn a $25 credit for every friend you refer to Stitch Fix that makes a purchase. What better way to earn money for a new wardrobe? And now, let's get back to the show. Next, I'd like to discuss the Bobby Dunbar mystery, which initially began on August 23, 1912, in Opelousas, Louisiana. Percy and Lessie Dunbar took their two young children camping at a nearby lake. Sometime that night, their four-year-old son, Bobby Dunbar, wandered away from their tent. A massive search ensued. The searchers even shot off dynamite in Swayze Lake, hoping the blasts would unearth Bobby's body in case he had drowned. Large alligators were hunted, their bellies sliced open in the search for the missing boy. Bobby still didn't turn up, but a day after he went missing, his hat was discovered a short distance from Swayze Lake, leading some to fear the young boy had been kidnapped. His parents offered a reward for any information about his whereabouts. In their description of their son, they wrote, Large, round blue eyes, hair light but turning dark, complexion very fair with rosy cheeks, well-developed, stout but not very fat, big toe on left foot, badly scarred from burn when a baby. Eight months later, police stopped a peddler named William Cantwell Walters. He was traveling through Mississippi with a young boy about the same age and general appearance as Bobby Dunbar. They asked for information about the boy. William said Bobby was his nephew, the son of his brother, who'd fathered the child illegitimately with a young woman named Julia Anderson. Julia had worked as a caretaker for William Walters' parents back home in North Carolina. When police tracked down Julia Anderson, she said she'd agreed to let her son, named Bruce, travel with William, but he'd been gone for more than a year. For some reason, she'd never reported Bruce missing. Police still believed the young boy could be Bobby Dunbar, so they contacted Percy and Leslie Dunbar and asked them to travel to Mississippi to see the boy in person. But when they arrived, the boy didn't seem to recognize them, and they weren't so sure it was Bobby either. Eight months had passed, but they were still certain they would have felt more of a connection if he was their son. Eventually, Lessie said she recognized some familiar moles and scars on the child, and they took him back home to Louisiana, where they were greeted by the town with a parade and a brass band. An article that ran in Country Roads magazine reported that a newspaper paid Julia Anderson to take a trip to Opelousas to see if the boy was indeed her son. Bobby and four other boys of the same age were brought in, one at a time, to meet her. None of the boys appeared to recognize Julia, and vice versa. The next day, she requested another meeting with Bruce, undressed him, and said she recognized some moles he had on his body. But by that time, it was too late. Authorities didn't hold a high opinion of Julia, because they felt like she had abandoned her son, since she didn't report him missing for almost a year and a half. Bobby was settling in with the Dunbars and enjoying the gifts the town had sent him, and he wanted to remain there in Louisiana. 
William Cantwell Walters was convicted of kidnapping Bobby Dunbar. He was able to get a new trial on appeal, but authorities decided not to try him again, and he was released from jail after serving two years. Julia Anderson eventually settled in Mississippi and raised eight other children, but she always insisted the boy with William Cantwell Walters had been her son. Bobby stayed with the Dunbars, married, and raised a family. He passed away in 1966. But the story didn't end there. According to reporting by Kathy Pickens, Bobby Dunbar's granddaughter received a family scrapbook from her father in 1999. Margaret Cuthright had heard about her grandfather's mysterious journey while growing up in Winston-Salem. She did a little digging and found the daughter of the attorney who had represented William Cantwell Walters when he was tried for kidnapping. The granddaughter had a 900-page defense file in her possession, which Margaret eagerly studied. As Pickens put it, in all those typed pages, news reports, and editorial cartoons, Margaret started wondering about the links between Piney Woods, North Carolina, and a Louisiana swamp and a wealthy family and a woman who didn't have much but her children. Margaret decided to find out once and for all if her grandfather had been Bobby Dunbar or Bruce Anderson, as William Cantwell Walters and Julia Anderson claimed. Bobby Dunbar's son, Robert, Margaret's father, had settled into Kinston, North Carolina, just a few hours from where the Walters family still lives and where Julia Anderson was from before relocating to Mississippi. Margaret asked that her father submit to a DNA test. The results showed that Bobby was not related to the Dunbars at all. He was Julia Anderson's son, Bruce. William Cantwell Walters and Julia Anderson had been telling the truth all along. What remains a mystery is what really happened to Bobby Dunbar. Did he tragically drown in Swayze Lake on that 1912 camping trip with his family? Or was he kidnapped by someone else? I guess we'll never know. And finally, I wanted to mention a missing persons case from Myrtle Beach, South Carolina that ended tragically. 25-year-old Christopher Bowling was reported missing to the Myrtle Beach Police Department on August 2, 2020. He was reported to have last been seen in the Hadley Circle area on July 27. Police questioned Christopher's roommate, a 23-year-old named Tyler John Panzarella, originally from Huntersville, North Carolina. He made false statements to the police and also misled them until early September of 2020. Then. He made the decision to lead police to Christopher's body, which was located near Lucas Bay Road. Investigators used dental records in order to identify the victim. Once Christopher was found, police arrested Tyler and traveled to Tennessee to arrest 19-year-old Nicholas Henry, who was also charged with murder. The victim had been shot to death, and at the time, Tyler admitted that he had purchased and supplied the weapon that was used to murder Christopher. Last month, Tyler Panzarella entered an Alford plea to voluntary manslaughter. This type of plea means a defendant does not admit guilt, but recognizes that there's a substantial likelihood a jury would convict them based upon the available evidence. He was sentenced to 20 years in prison and must serve 85% of his sentence before being eligible for parole. 
Nicholas Henry has not yet been tried. What is not clear in the published news report is possible motive for Christopher's death. In an interview with WPDE ABC 15 News in South Carolina, his mother said Nicholas had been Christopher's friend for five or six years, and the three young men were aspiring rappers. He called Nicholas his little bro and enjoyed hanging out and writing songs with the two men. She hopes officials will be able to release more information in the future. Before I close this episode, I'd like to ask you a favor. I've put together a short survey with a few questions about listener demographics. I'm in the process of corresponding with a few potential sponsors and would like to give them a more detailed picture of our listeners. I promise that these survey responses will only be used for information gathering purposes, and I will never give out email addresses or other information to third-party companies. Adding additional sponsorships to the show would allow me to create episodes on a more regular schedule, as well as create more content that I think you will enjoy. You can find a link to the survey in the show notes for the podcast and on our social media pages. I appreciate your help. This brings us to the conclusion of Missing in the Carolinas. If you enjoyed this episode, please do me a favor and give it a five-star rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. We're also now on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, so please like our pages and get started on a discussion of the missing people profiled on the show. Do you know of a missing persons case in North or South Carolina that you think should be covered? Email me at missinginthecarolinas at gmail.com with any details you can share. And don't forget to check out our sponsor, WOW Women on Writing, and the great programs and writing contests they have there at www wow-womenonwriting.com. Cover art for this podcast was designed by Macintosh Multimedia. All episodes are researched and written by me, Renee Robertson, with sound editing provided by Mia Robertson. Thanks so much for listening.